Well, good morning again. I'm very grateful that Pastor Jones is allowing me to the privilege of bringing God's Word to us today. And uh, this morning we are turning to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the first three verses. It can be found on the Pew Bible on page 61. Uh, last Mother's Day, uh, I had the privilege as well of preaching, and I, we looked at the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And uh, so it's been a while, but we're, we're kind of compiling a series here, perhaps the longest series um, through the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and the focus uh, for this series is really examining how God gives us uh, His commandments for the purpose of building a healthy relationship with us. He does it out of His grace. And his commandments, as much as we can have many different views on what the commandments are, they are pictures of grace, his love, his character, his goodness towards us. Little theologians, if your parents permit, uh, I would encourage you to perhaps draw one of three, or if you can get all three of these images in, it would be wonderful. Uh, draw a picture of a mirror, because God's commandments... They function as a mirror. They show us our sins. They reveal to us uh, who we are in, apart from Christ as, as we're honest with them. A mirror, a fence, God's word, God's law is a fence. It restrains evil in our world and society. It protects. But it's also a guide. If you could draw a guide because it shows us what is good and righteous. As I said, it shows us what a healthy relationship with God looks like and with each other. So if you could draw those three things, and we're going to examine and focus on how God's commandment is a, is a picture and is God's grace. Let me read God's word to us this morning from Exodus chapter 20, again, these first three verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for how it reveals to us who you are and what is good and righteous in this world. Would you give us ears to hear you this morning, and would you give us hearts that conform unto yours? So lead us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. Thank you for the many kind words, encouraging notes, and prayers for me and my family over the last week, uh, your patience with me as I went and flew out to attend my uncle's funeral last weekend. As you can imagine, being at that time with loved ones, it was a good time, but as you know, as funerals are, it was a hard time. It was a time when I was uh, dwelling in preparation because I was leading aspects of the worship service and sharing the eulogy. I was remembering stories of my uncle in preparation for that week, and, and as I flew out there, what struck me the most is when I hit my home city and when I gathered with my family, 
all of the memories of my uncle came flooding back to my mind. I had a few, but it just, uh, the, the number, the sheer ways that, that uh, my uncle had influenced me and things he had done, things that I had done and that he had helped me in life in, they all came rushing back in that moment when I was gathered with family. And, and those times are very sensitive and important times for us as families and loved ones to gather together. Uh, I was reminded in those moments, as I had forgotten so much, I was reminded how, how I'd been instructed and told by other pastors to make sure to journal my thoughts. I've encouraged some of you to do that in the midst of your grief, to journal your memories, because it's one of the most sensitive times when we'll remember the most about our loved ones, perhaps. And, and, and as I was thinking about that time and how much I had forgotten about my uncle, how much I had forgotten about my life and my childhood, uh, it also brought to mind a, a dear friend of mine, uh, an elderly friend of mine, who uh, I happened to, to interact with or greet on the day when she had lost her last best childhood friend. And she was in tears asking the question, who will remember what my life was like when I was a child? All the memories that she had built up, the small little town in Arkansas she grew up, which had changed so much over the course of eight decades. And she was wrestling with her memory. And she was wrestling with the community's memory of what it was like. We struggle to remember. It's hard for us to remember. It's hard because our minds and our memories, they fade. We can forget very important people, very important things, very important aspects of our lives. And it's not just the long-term memories that we forget, uh, it's recent memories. Things like where I left my keys, or, you know, did I tell that story to you already? Or uh, did I really promise the kids dessert? <laughs> or this might be a Bennett one, I won't say yes or no, but, you know, the tooth fairy might have supposed to shown up the last couple nights uh, and has, we might have forgotten that. And for even questions, even though those are kind of silly, questions of what it was like in 2019 before the pandemic, before Zoom, before virtual meetings had taken over and become the norm. It's hard to remember fully what life was like. What were the challenges of 2019? What was the challenges before social media? What was life like before then? And even those cultural thoughts of memory, sadly there are times we forget about our good and our gracious King. There are times when we're tempted to sin, and we do, and we quickly forget what God's Word tells us, and we forget how much He loves us. We forget how much He provides for us. I had a seminary professor tell the class one day, one time, that despite his many doctorates and despite the knowledge of God's Word that he was imparting to us as future pastors, he came week after week on Sunday mornings to worship because he forgot how good God is. We forget. We forget the wonders of his grace and the benefits. And we ask the question, what has he done for me lately? And the same question that we wrestle with, with is one the Israelites, all God's people throughout time have struggled in, particularly as we look at the book of Exodus.
And even as the Israelites face these questions, as they forget, as we look at these three verses, God is calling out a people for himself. He does not forget. The Lord remembers. He remembers his promises. He remembers his work on your behalf. And he will make himself known in the world through those to whom he has called from darkness to light. Those who he has brought out of slavery into freedom. Those to whom he has bound himself. He will remember. And so even as we look at this first commandment, we have to begin with this prologue. We have to begin with his great reminder His great love in forming this covenantal, this special relationship with us. The Lord calls us to remember his covenantal faithfulness. And so we hear these words. And God spoke all these words. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, if I could, if you could bear with me just a brief moment, let's have a brief synopsis of of God's faithfulness with this generation of Israelites so far. Remember, they were in Egypt. They were slaves. They were the weakest of nations, weakest of people. And God pulls this weak nation, overcoming the strongest military and national power of the day. And and in Exodus 14, the Israelites are saved from the Egyptians, and God actually brings them through the Red Sea, which many of us remember that story, taking out the greatest military in that, that one moment. And in Exodus 15, the Israelites sing. They burst into song of God's great protection and provision. Uh, Exodus 15, 13 says, you have led your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you've guided them by your strength and your holy abode. All of God's people are chanting and singing and have this in their hearts. And in verse 21, Moses' sister Miriam leads all the women and she, she sings and they dance and they say, sing to the Lord for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. What a beautiful picture. They know God's goodness. They know his faithfulness. But in three short days in the wilderness, when things aren't going well, they look around and they wonder, will God provide water? And we're told they grumble against God's leadership. They had forgotten God's love. They put God to the test. And God provides. He listens to their need. He provides, he protects them, and he reminds them that he's their God. And then in Exodus 16, they've made it a little farther, but they're not at Mount Sinai yet, and they cry out the whole of, of, of the congregation, we're told in, in 16.3, the whole of the people of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron. And they actually say this, they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (laughs) It's, It's sadly humorous. It's a horrific statement. 
And Moses tells Aaron on behalf of the Lord, he says, say to the whole congregation of the people, come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. Just pause on that, that phrase, that sentence. Come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. Just pause on that. And God again provides, and he sends manna and quail for his people. And then the next chapter in 17, they travel farther, and again, they can't find water. They haven't hit Mount Sinai yet, but they have the same grumble against the Lord. And they say this question, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And God again lovingly demonstrates that covenantal steadfast faithfulness in protection and in providing water. And then in the next chapter, 18, Moses has arrived to meet his father-in-law, Jethro. And uh, as they're talking, Jethro has heard the news. He hasn't seen the salvation, but he's heard the news. He, like so many, are amazed that the God of of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, could overthrow the Egyptians. And he gives this amazing statement of faith. And the very next day, Jethro goes to find Moses, and he sees the crowds of Israelites surrounding Moses with their complaints, their bickerings, their grumblings with one another. Where Jethro was so amazed with the love and work of, of this God who protects and provides, this covenantal king, the Israelites had already lost that song that was in their hearts from Exodus 15. And they were bickering and they were grumbling amongst themselves. How quickly we forget. God knows this pattern in our hearts and in our lives. And so that's why he grounds his commandments in his love, his work. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even without the joyous songs in the Israelites' hearts, God has committed himself to them. I am your God. This covenant relationship, it's a bond in blood. A special kind of relationship, unique from the Lord to his people. Nothing else like it. The closest we get is marriage. But the Lord gives himself to his people. Why does he do it? He does it because he loves them. He's showing the world who he is. He is redeemer. He initiates, he acts on behalf of his people, his family whom he deeply loves. The Lord tells us that before you can understand his commandments, you must know that I have redeemed you. Apart from from this statement of truth, the, the, the commandments are great wisdom and they're good and they're helpful, but they're not covenantal. They might even be good moralism of things that we might do that it's good in the world. But God sets before us this promise and this redemption that calls us into a family so that we would see what a healthy relationship's like looks like in this relationship, in these commandments. He initiates. He demonstrates his faithfulness, 
his loving work before he gives us his commands, before he tells us how to live rightly in the world. And this small picture of redemption, I mean, this is a huge picture. It's, it's, it's unheard of that the Israelites, a slave nation, could step out of Egypt on their, uh, on their own strength. It's impossible, humanly speaking, impossible. Yet God does this. He does this as a small picture of his love that's ultimately pointing the way for the greater act of redemption when enslavement wouldn't be to a nation. Enslavement would be to the, the patterns of sin and death that are in our lives. The things that we have made by our own choosing, how we've rejected and walked away from God, how we've fallen short and, and abandoned him and chosen our own way. God initiates that relationship to draw us unto himself. He's the one who comes and sends his own son to accomplish a work we could not in our human hands undo. He bears our sins while we were dead in our own, a humanly speaking impossible task. This is the rhythm, the pattern of how God makes himself known time and time again in scriptures. He is faithful. Come and be a part of his family. He never says, fix yourselves up and I'll save you. And this prologue, it's a reminder and it's a picture of his covenantal faithfulness that even as we see God's law, we know he loves us and he's called us to be in this relationship. He's adopted us as his children. And so as we look and remember God's covenantal faithfulness, in that covenantal context, we see this first commandment, this commandment that he calls us to love him above all else. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a unique command. Uh, it's, it's different from the other nine. Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes it this way. He says, uh, the rest of the nine commandments are really about things you shouldn't do or things you should do. But this command is something different. This command is about what kind of relationship you ought to be in with God. This commandment lays the foundation for all the other commandments and all the other moral obligations in God's word. There can be no other gods because you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now notice this command doesn't say the word worship. It doesn't say worship other gods, you shall not worship. It says uh, something much more basic and much more simple. If we were to try and take the words just as they are, it would say something like, you ain't having any gods. It's a to be verb. You shall not have. It's an exclusive claim that the Lord is the only true God. There are no other gods that we can turn to. And in the ancient world, as you can imagine, of all the other false gods, the pagan nations that were around them, uh, Israelites had left Egypt, and they had seen how God uh, had destroyed their pantheon in the plagues. Even Pharaoh, who claimed to be a god, was helpless. There were no gods to protect the Egyptians. And they're about to head into a land of Canaan. 
Or there'd be more false gods. They'd be tempted to forget God's faithfulness, to seek after those things which ultimately don't exist. Why would they do this? Again, because they forget. They forget the realities of God's provision when they're faced with their fears, when they're faced with their sins, when they're faced with the overwhelming brokenness of the world. And instead of waiting on the Lord, they give in to the unknown. They turn their hearts away. And they place their comfort in things they think will satisfy, things they think will give them safety and comfort. Jesus picks up on this in many places. But one of the things he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 is, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Mamnon, or money, or trusted thing. At the heart of what these gods are that we're being called away from is these things that pull our hearts, our hearts' devotion to them alone. This is language of loyalty. Things that we believe will give us security and safety. Things that will provide the rain. Things that will make our lives better. Trusted things that ultimately pull us into a servitude. And the question is, will our trust be in the Lord, in his provision? Or will our hearts be drifted away towards another? John Calvin helpfully writes this. He says, the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. We're inventing ways, we look for ways to find safety and security on our own. But there's nothing in those places that can bring us safety and security. No job, no relationship, human with another human, nothing will provide us complete security and safety. Even when we are in places of wilderness and we can't see the places of his provision yet, we can't see the water or the manna or the quail, God will provide for his people because he's bound himself to us in Christ. And as we trust in that provision, our hearts align with his. We conform to his. In addition to the external forces that can serve as gods, that can pull our hearts away, this verse also includes the internal forces that pull our heart to seek out to be God ourselves. Just like the first sin in the garden to not reflect God's image in the world, but to be God, to be like God. This verse confronts our own heart's desires for self-rule, for autonomy, for living life by our own hand. Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane, they they, uh, wrote a a great book on relationships, and in that book they they talk about this concept of self-rule. They say that those who seek out to live in their own self-rule, their own way of life, their own autonomy, will actually sacrifice intimacy of being known. 
What they're saying is, is when we seek to be our own God, we actually run away from the thing that our heart longs for the most, to be known and loved. Intimacy is lost in our self-rule. Unity is lost in our self-rule. But in God's loving kindness and in his care, when we resist that self-rule, we actually find a place where we can live as he lives in laying down our lives for one another and sharing the deep, deepest concerns of our hearts. And then there's this little strange phrase, this little strange language at the end of this first command. You shall have no other gods before me. What does God mean by these words, before me? He could have just said, you shall have no other gods. That certainly would have been sufficient. But this phrase, before me, is, is again, it's a covenantal reminder. It's not just that the Israelites are forbidden for other gods, it's that they're forget forbidden because they belong to the Lord. They are the ones that are before me. Uh, to, to transliterate that word, that word, it actually refers to one's face, to being in one's presence. You shall have no other gods in my presence. The Lord is saying, because you belong to me, because of this covenantal relationship, there cannot be any false gods among you because you belong before my face. Now remember what I mentioned to say, I said hold on to in that Exodus 16, 9 verse. What Moses said to Aaron, he said, come near before the Lord, for he's heard your, your grumbling. That's the same word, that before the Lord. Come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. It's as if God is saying, the phrase before the Lord, I cannot handle any, any idols, any untruth, any self-rule before me. But I want you before me. You are before me in the face of your deepest grumblings, in, in the face of your, your most confusing moments, in the times when you feel the most discontent, uh, all of your pain, uh, when you come to church because of duty rather than desire or delight. He wants you before his face. He hears you in your grumbling. And he gives you real love by his presence because you belong to him. He wants you near. Yesterday, I had been gone for most of the day. Um, and when I got home, my youngest son, Luke, who's about 20 months, uh, was sitting by the TV and he was, he was watching it, but he heard the door uh, close, he heard my voice. And immediately from around the corner, I hear a thump and pitter, 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 as this little one desperately moved away from the thing that had his attention and came running towards his father. And he jumped up in my arms, and he just wanted to be held. In that moment, the TV had lost its joy because his delight was in his father. Well, the Lord is calling us into this kind of relationship where we would turn from the things we think will make us satisfied and happy. The one who tells us, I am your Father, the Lord your God. He has brought you into the greatest thing the universe will ever know, a covenantal family 
through his own son. But instead of hearing the pitter-patter of our feet coming to him, our father comes running to us. And he tells us this commandment, be and remain in my presence, in my face, in my love alone, and love me. Turn from the other gods that pull your hearts away from me, because my love will satisfy you. You belong to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us. You've sought us out while we were wandering. You've loved us with a zeal that sent your own son to the cross. And you vindicated his work by raising him from the dead. And in you we have life and life abundant. Would you fixate our hearts and minds on you alone, that you'd expose the gods that we our hearts cling to, so that in turning from them, we will find the source of all love and life in you. Help us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.